0: You're now listening to Dirty Feet,
1: a brand new podcast on No More Radio.
0: Bonjour, oui, vous êtes sur les ondes des pieds sales, a.k.a. Dirty Feet podcast on No More Radio. I'm Allison Burns.
1: I'm JD Papillon. Oh,
0: I'm Jen Don. the donor. Donor. I'm the donor. This is Joanie on No More Radio. Stay tuned for dance, circus, last tango, movement, salsa, whatever it is, we're going to move you. Welcome to Dirty Feet on the No More Radio Network. We're going to be talking about dance and movement and performance. Uh, I'm Alison Burns here with my co-hosts, J.D. Papillon and Joanie Farrand. Bonjour. Bonjour. We have two guests in studio today that uh, we're really excited to have. And thank you for joining us, Aaron and George. Aaron Flynn and George Stamos. uh, We really appreciate you guys coming in uh, to the Montreal Improv Theatre, which we're now recording our show from. So welcome. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Yes.
0: Let's get started with, with who you guys are. (laughs) <laughs> and and why you're such um, interesting minds to pick on the topic of dance and teaching dance and performing, interpreting, these things that we're going to try and cover today in a, in a brief uh, hour interview. So yeah, let's start with you, George.
2: Okay, hi, yes, George Stamos is my name, and I'm a choreographer and a dancer and a teacher, and uh, I studied at the School for New Dance Development in Amsterdam where I received my um degree and then I moved to New York, where I uh, lived and worked for four years in the downtown scene there. and um, <clears throat> then I moved to Montreal fourteen years ago and i I kind of shifted more into the dance context because while I was in New York, I was in more of a performance art in the traditional American sense of the term, um, scene. Uh, and then when I moved to Montreal, I was more in a contemporary dance scene. Um, so I kind of re-approached my training as a dancer and um, pursued work as a dancer for choreographers, as well as um, continued continued to create my own choreographies. And I've been doing that um, for 14 years here. And um, yeah, so I've, I I kind of do the two I'm not some a lot of people do one or the other, but I do both
0: Where are you from originally?
2: originally, I grew up in Nova scotia ah, yes,
0: fantastic and do you consider yourself a Montrealer now after seventeen years
2: uh fourteen oh, years 14? and uh sure yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but as an Anglophone, I think there's always this sort of you're not really. I don't know. That's a big. That's kind of another another topic. But um, I'm not Québécois, you know. <laughs> so I, I I spent a lot of time. Oh, I spent ten years outside of Canada, and so I feel like that has helped me with um, how I feel about living in Montreal. Because I could feel like sometimes I'm a foreigner in my own country because I'm because Quebec is also perceived and very much its own nation. So. Coming from Nova Scotia, I feel like not part of the nation of Quebec sometimes, but I'm also comfortable with that feeling from living actually outside of Canada before. Um, so it's, it's complicated, uh, this question in, in Montreal for sure, but I feel like a Montrealer, I mean, if this feels like home, yeah.
0: Fair enough. I was just curious, also going through my own, where am I from? <laughs> <laughs> Who am I? Where are you from? I'm from Ottawa. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah there you go. How about you, Erin? Aaron? Where do you come from? Where are you going? What have you done? Oh,
3: wow. Well, uh, I'm from Saskatchewan, so I've been gradually moving east my whole life, and um, dance has sort of taken me that way. So I think I started dancing around four to the Sounds of (laughs) Star Wars in my parents' (laughs) living room, and then from there, you know, did the traditional taking ballet and jazz and modern and gymnastics, and then... uh, When I was eight, I started going to summer schools at the Royal Pig Ballet. And uh, that was a welcome break from my reality of Saskatchewan. And so it was sort of like a ticket out. (laughs) And so at 12, I moved to Winnipeg to go to the ballet school. And I left my family, and then I have a brother who also danced, so my family moved and followed me a year later. So I grew up going to the professional ballet school there, and then uh, at 17, I left to go to Toronto, and I danced at TDT for a year. And then I ended up back in Winnipeg, although I had intended on moving to Montreal. And uh, so I went to school at the Winnipeg School of Contemporary Dancers. And then when I finished that, I was an apprentice at Le Groupe de la Place Royale for a year. I went to Europe briefly and then ended up dancing professionally in Winnipeg for about four or five years before moving to Montreal, which was 11 years ago. And I've always been making dances and pursuing a career as a dancer as well.
0: Fantastic. So we we wanted to focus a little bit on um, the aspect of teaching dance because you both have experience with that. And and, and George, right now, you just came from teaching a dance class. Yeah,
2: at Concordia, the third year um, and fourth year students in the Concordia dance department, a technique class in the morning.
0: Fantastic. And Erin, you've taught uh, R- RQD classes before? Yeah, yeah, I've taught
3: dance in a lot of capacities. Last year I was teaching RQD um, for about a month, and I just finished teaching at Concordia last Friday as well.
0: Okay, yeah. so you headed yeah. over the...
3: <laughs> well, I was actually teaching second years, and okay. I think George is teaching the third years, but yeah. yes, in the same, same space. Very cool. Beautiful studios. Very. Gorgeous. <laughs>
1: Absolutely fantastic. I
0: never knew, unfortunately. We <laughs> yeah. were from the old school Loyola oh, um, campus right. when, we, uh, when we graduated. In a few they had years a certain sense of charm there, it though. kind of did. The one bathroom and the <laughs> 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 cozy. No, the bad. stale air. I think it, for
1: dancers, the stale air brings a lot of inspiration <laughs> and creativity.
0: Yes. Oh, yes. Stale. <laughs>
1: and uh i I find it interesting because you guys have very uh have taught at very different levels uh Aaron, you've taught at a after school class for u of m students mm-hmm. just part of their gym classes that they have uh you've both taught in a more academic program with Ladme. george you've taught at Ladme, i think i'm
2: uh i haven't taught classes there but i'm i've been actually recently teaching. Um, repertory uh, from the piece that I created with Morial Dance uh, to the Labme students, to the third-year students.
0: This is Husk that you're talking yeah,
2: about? Yeah, that's the piece.
1: And so you guys have taught at that level. You've also taught workshops to professional dancers. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you approach going into this new context? Like, Do, do you actually change your expectations, quote-unquote, of uh, what to give students, what students will give back, or do you always go with the, sort of the same mentality?
3: I think it really, hmm, my priorities are probably always the same, but the ways of communicating and the ways i getting at things probably varies. I think when I first started teaching, I was teaching in the professional schools first, and I I think it's almost easier to teach at a higher level than it is to teach beginners because, you know, like you're not responsible for the fundamental ways that people are understanding what they're doing and the how they're relating to their bodies. If they already have a formation, you can tweak it and you can refine it. Um, but, yeah, you don't have the grunt work. And it's only recently since I started teaching more Pilates and yoga that I start to really involve myself in the way that muscles are firing and the habitual patterns that people are using and i think that's where you can have like a a fundamental impact on people it depends for sure how long you have um where you choose to uh approach if it's one day then you offer up some ideas if it's four weeks then you can go further yeah i think it it varies
0: depending on the length and the context as well not just the level i just have a question off of that um do you find that there's a responsibility to fix like a bad habit that comes in with, with a student that's uh, a little more experienced? Hmm.
3: I think I'm trying more and more to to read where people are at and to see if people are open to that kind of information and how you can express an idea that in a way that it will be heard. Um, because I think in the past I've given a lot of corrections for habits I've seen, but maybe the way in which I said it maybe made someone feel defensive rather than Mm. open to. So it's like kind of like opening up awareness so that they could become aware of it themselves rather than um, just giving like a superficial correction that maybe they could correct for a while when they're conscious of it but then forget it right away again. So... Yeah, I think I think the most useful thing that we can give as like contemporary dance artists is like an awareness of alignment, an awareness of how you work with gravity, an awareness of how you breathe, and I think you can apply that across the board uh, whether someone's an amateur uh, walking in off the street or someone's a professional. I think those are always really important things.
2: Yeah. Well, <laughs> I uh, to answer your question, I would say that it's um The experience in teaching in a university as part of a program versus a professional workshop I find very different um, because in a professional workshop situation I'm more free to um, Teach my practice and how things blend how technique and creative process and improvisation and choreography all kind of can blend together whereas in the context of a of a a program. I have to be very specific as to this is a technique class, so we're not going to go too much into the creative process aspect, and um, so that you know you, you want to f- look at how what you know th- the definition of your class in the whole curriculum and how it fits, and also think about where they're what they're doing the rest of the day and how you're preparing them for that, or how it speaks to the different things that they that they might be learning. Um, so you're kind of just one piece of a f- bigger puzzle, as opposed to A whole puzzle that you can just kind of say (laughs) this is my puzzle (laughs) um so that that's really different um in terms of the correcting bad habits um i i totally relate to what aaron was saying about how you want to say it in a way that it can be heard and i feel like um a lot of times quote-unquote bad habits are can become kind of like crutches that you feel like you need to do in order to be able to achieve this you need to do this thing um and so It's kind of like figuring out how to take the crutch away slowly, not too quickly so that they feel lost, but to kind of first acknowledge that, okay, you do this thing. Do you know? (laughs) Do you realize you do this thing? (laughs) Okay, if we can agree on that, that's a good start. (laughs) And then, do you need to do this thing always? Okay, maybe you do. (laughs) Maybe you can do this thing a little less. Mm -hmm. Maybe you can eventually not have to do this thing. So (laughs) that's... What's the thing? (laughs) Well, the thing could be. Any
0: bad habit, I guess, yeah?
2: Yeah, any bad habit. I mean, what is a bad habit? Uh, A bad habit is something that's getting in the way of the learning, that's getting. That is like something that is unnecessary. So it's kind of almost becomes a distraction from what the exercise should be. It's sort of a. It's like a a tangent on the side. Um, And it's a habit, so it's sort of not always thought. It's, it's, it happens automatically, which is why the work of bringing it into the consciousness is really important because if if the person is not aware that they're even doing it and then you're you're giving them directions to change it they they can get like what like because they didn't even know they were kind of mm-hmm. doing that um or they might have thought that that habit was the exercise yeah. <laughs> so and, yeah,
1: and where did you draw the line between? Uh, Different physical bodies And people like listening to their bodies And a bad habit Because sometimes Physical limitations will impact How someone's doing an exercise How do you find a way around All of that?
3: I just had an answer and then (laughs) It (laughs) left from my brain
2: well, I think what Aaron said about the basic principles of looking at the weight, where's the weight, what's the going on with the alignment, the breath. There, there are sort of fundamental principles that you can always check in any given situation mm-hmm. to see are you sacrificing those. Um, and any body, anyone with a body can breathe and have weight in different places and have alignment. So you can always go to that as a kind of um fundamental thing to measure in a in a in a movement exercise it's like so that go that goes beyond different body types or limitations um i think this is an maybe an advantage to depending on how you're teaching but if you're teaching less from replicating form and more from going with directions that are uh, about anatomy and directions in space and weight then then the form can be appropriate to that body as opposed to trying to be somebody else's body
3: yeah i think that's really key this idea of form versus like feeling something from the inside and getting across this notion of like an action or a movement or a practice rather than trying to create a shape yeah because you know like a lot of us start with ballet, which there's nothing inherently wrong with ballet, but a lot of the way it's interpreted is achieving these these shapes when then you start to measure and compare body type and height of leg, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And I think like sometimes limitations are real blessings because when people are working with, say, lex- less flexibility, they can stabilize better they have better balance when someone's hyper flexible they're less aware where their body is in space yeah. because their ligaments are looser yeah. and so they tend to be like well i can do this really exciting thing that got me a lot of attention and and then you, you want to take this away and have me drop my hip like or or feel like my posture while i'm lifting my leg. so I, I think we get attached to form, and a lot of us have learned dance technique by trying to achieve a look from the outside. We teach dance a lot using mirrors, which creates this kind of two-dimensional, narcissistic impression of yourself and i find tons of the corrections i have are just taking away the weir- the mirror and letting people feel like they're back feeling the back of their body feeling what's underneath them not and then that takes away people's you know lifting out of their ribs or focusing their eyes it's like you open up your peripheral vision you sense what's around you rather than just looking and comparing and um making yourself into a cookie cutter or more of a sculpture than a moving body in space so i mean of course it's subjective but i think that we're probably in contemporary dance looking for more of a a holistic sort of very conscious body in space and then that's not limited by someone who's not flexible or who doesn't have the most i don't know hyper mobile body do you
2: Go ahead. Oh, just agreeing. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Fifth pumping. <laughs> fist's pumping in the air now.
0: I always have this this suspicion or uh, theory that if you start dancing later in life, then uh, again these these habits aren't formed, and that you can kind of get right into that. Uh-huh. You can understand that easier. Yeah. Right off the bat, when you start to move, do you feel that there's a difference between people that you've been teaching who? started dancing later or early. Yeah.
3: Yeah. I, I feel like, and personally I really live this. I, I sometimes think there's a big advantage to starting later because you have less things to unlearn and, um, you're also less damaged. Like (laughs) I hate to say it, but like for people who go through ballet school, there's such, um, it's really like warps your mind as well as your body. And, uh, if you start later, your joints are healthier, you have more of a sense of who you are, you're probably breathing better, you probably probably taking better care of yourself, then for sure you have to work hard to become a dancer and you have to really dedicate yourself to it, but... I think you're less, maybe your ego isn't bent in a certain direction in the same way either. Like if someone has won a lot of competitions and then you're asking them to undo all those things that won them a lot of competitions, there's where you get a fight. Whereas if someone's new, they're open and they're more receptive sometimes. So.
1: And the form thing that you're talking about also, I feel, yeah. is much more implanted in people who've started earlier.
2: Let's just, um, we're talking about starting earlier with ballet because I, I think. Starting earlier doesn't necessarily yeah. have mm-hmm. to begin with a ballet training. That's true. And if you look at other cultures, too, like in Africa, the babies are dancing, you know, yeah. or the, the mothers are already kind of shaking them around in, to the dancing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, literally <laughs> sometimes. And, um, and so it depends on the education that you get. That's true for sure. Yeah. Do you
1: feel that this obsession with form might be more of an occidental uh focus do you feel that in other cultures there might be less of this obsession with perfect lines with bringing those great shapes to to the stage
2: um i think it probably varies uh i think there's real precision in a lot of if i think about um Asi- asiatic uh dance forms um indian dancing bharatanatyam things like that They're, the lines are super specific and clear and there's a real precision um with the lines, um, I don't. I haven't studied it really that much, so I don't know that much about it, really. I, I worked with Roger Cena yeah. for a few years, so I got like a little taste of it yeah. that way. So for sure the lines were important there, um, and um, the form was very important. I studied African um, fundamental techniques with Zab Bangu, and I was in Africa in July, and I saw the... Um, the way that people are working there it's it's uh less about the form and more coming from the weight measuring the weight and the time um so yeah the rhythm is coming from the amount of time it takes to drop down weight pick it up do something with it and arrive somewhere else and that's that's kind of where the mind is more uh but again form of course plays into it there's th- the posture the 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 form that you carry as opposed to arriving at pictures, kind of, mm-hmm. is more where the form is. So it's a living, moving form that is maintained. Um, yeah, and we were in, Aaron and I, I danced for Aaron in a piece um, where we went to uh, Tokyo and Seoul, and we saw some dancing from some Japanese artists and yeah. uh, and uh, Korean, and there was a definitely less of a, at least in that work, less of a concern with form than some of the contemporary dance that I've seen, um, you know, more Western.
3: The Koreans especially were working with um, a form of Qigong that's from Korea, and their work was really based in breath, and so they really achieved some, like, incredible physical things, but their warm-up was like doing breathing exercises in their hotel room, you know, (laughs) so they, I think that it seems to me, and I'm totally guessing, but it seems to me if the practice begins with breath, there's already a consciousness of like an interior pathway, which also leads to proprioception. So I'm guessing that maybe if you've studied martial arts, even though there's like an attention to detail externally, there's like this internal work that you're, that you're learning at the very beginning, which I can say that as a ballet dancer i didn't learn like uh, in ballet training i was really taught how to move my body in space but i was more taught how to hold my breath and how to create an illusion of like weightlessness as opposed to using momentum and moving using gravity so i think that has influenced western culture for sure in western dance but i couldn't speak to how it's trained in other cultures
1: for the koreans was the piece where they were constantly jumping up and lying on the floor, yeah. that yeah. was physically insane.
3: It was. Yeah. Maybe that's why the warm up was just breathing. Well,
2: oxygen <laughs> yeah. brings uh, power, right? Yeah. Yeah.
3: yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you have to find efficiency of movement for sure.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, what about when uh, you're teaching more physical sequences? Mm-hmm. Uh, do, do you feel that there's a risk for those basics to to be lost in translation? Almost. Do, do you feel, or do you feel that? Like those those basics inside of your body Even if you're going out of your comfort zone Physically that those are still Very present in dancers
3: I don't know if I understand the question um,
1: Like let's say you're starting to do uh, Cartwheels and jumps on the floor and everything Yeah. Do you feel that those basics Like when you're teaching Are you ever afraid that Going to that more physical zone uh, People will forget about mm. the basics That you've been trying to give them
3: I find it in the mid zone that that happens. Like when you get people jumping, usually the right things happen. You know, you could be trying all class to get someone to be aware of their alignment and to use their core without any success. And then you get them to jump and it all just kind of happens because the body has to do it. Um, whereas like if they're moving like in a sort of medium way across the space, then I find that's where like people might be more caught up in the steps you're asking them to perform and forget the efficient pathways. Personally, I... I like to move slowly and then gradually build up speed to sort of, you know, imprint your body in a slow way where you can feel it and think it through and then gradually over time it becomes habit and hopefully those efficient pathways come into play but I think you have to allow people to make those mistakes too. Sometimes, you know, like I've really been diligent sometimes about like stopping people when I see them going back to old habits and it's like Over time, they'll figure it out. But if you expect it in one class, like you're kind of just hitting your head against a wall, I think.
2: I think I know what you mean, but and I um, I think I have an answer. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What I could say is that I, I believe you have to train your the student's eye as well, like to train their ability to analyze what they're seeing. Because what can happen with the lost in translation part is when you get into set movement phrases, people can assume that they understand what they're seeing and then say, Oh, well then there's pirouette and then there's a you know, and I've seen this happen too in creative processes where you'll you'll see someone improvising with these different principles that don't reference, um Ballet at all, and then someone who has a real ballet eye will say, "Oh, then they do." Th- th- so, yes, it's, it's a pirouette, and then it's a, and all this ballet stuff starts coming out. That is not at all what the person <laughs> was doing. But so, in a class situation, um, I like to try to balance um, working with the principles that involve the student making choices as they cross the space using the principles of movement before the phrase starts to happen and then to try to match the two so it's like how can i match these principles with this set with this set movement so that it doesn't get to this other place where um that would be some other class about creative process or interpretation or maybe improvisation or something where we're not looking at technique and like being kind of like really nitpicky about what are the nuts and bolts of how this movement is happening
0: you're starting to touch on something that I'm curious about. How does your your teaching and your creative process uh, interact, and how do they inform each
2: other? Um, well, through the teaching, uh, you're also practicing. You're, you know, it's kind of you're getting to the heart of your your practice at the same time, and you're learning as you're teaching. Students teach you as well, and that's great. <laughs> so, you know, you also have to open your mind when you're. When you're teaching students to, it's very different from like, from having a group of dancers that you're paying. To, <laughs> it's, it's very different, you know. And that and that different approach can also help, um, you know, open your mind to seeing the the, the different potentials that are there. That not just because in the creative process, um, you might have noticed that choreographers can be a little bit um, <laughs> kind of obsessed with their own vision. <laughs> and which is part of the passion of, of of the work but but at the same time you can learn so much by opening up to the people around you and seeing what's you're giving into the room is resonating with the room and then being in conversation with that as opposed to just kind of like pushing through what you want
3: yeah i would totally agree with that and um just add that like teaching sort of forces you to like prioritize things and and come in contact what is like your true what are your values you know or what are the main principles guiding your work so in trying to articulate that it becomes clear and more conscious and then also, like, in structuring a class and creating a flow in a class, I think it's a good exercise for a choreographer because, you know, you you have to make, like, an introduction. You have to resolve it by the end. You want to create a dynamic and a structure that keeps people interested in what you're saying. Mm. And um, I know myself, like, sometimes in creating something, I can get really lost in the minutiae and... Uh, And in pacing a class, I know I can get too slow sometimes. And so when you start to see people a little bored or you're like, oh, okay, this is where you need to pick up the pace to keep them with you. And I think that that's really invaluable when you're, you know, trying to create a full length work because it's almost the same amount of time. Obviously, it's not the same thing. The audience isn't moving when they're watching. But uh, if you can create a physical experience for people, then maybe you can create a piece that creates some sort of physical experience for an audience.
1: And when you're creating sequences to teach a class, do you feel that it's representative of your own movement? Or do you feel that you're focusing more on basic principles? Like, do you feel that there's a distance between you as a creative artist and you as a teacher?
3: I feel like I do a generic version of... of. Uh what I'm interested in as a choreographer, like I like to turn, I like to jump, I used to, I like to use the floor, so I try and teach people how to do that, but I'm gonna be less idiosyncratic in the arms. I'm gonna be more general in where I ask people to place the head. I'm starting to work more with developing musicality in my students. Second quarter I was really working on that because I think at an intermediate level you want to develop that artistry, but um, I wouldn't go as far with the musicality or maybe with the freedom of interpretation of musicality in a, in a technique class as the way I would asking an interpreter to, to, to do my choreography.
2: Yeah, I have a similar approach, I would say. Um I I start I definitely start with um material that is directly from choreography that I that I have. Um but then I look at it and I kind of I I al- I alter it to match with um what the rest of the class is ha- what's happened in the in the class. So like if we've worked on um swinging the leg and turning in and out and finding weight in the thigh, I kind of make sure that that's part of what we're doing. I might, so I might add something that wasn't in the original choreography. Or if there was a lot of repetition that was part of a general theme of the piece, I'll take that out. Like, we won't do it 50 times. We'll just do it two. <laughs> um, and and then also, less because it's a technique class and not an improvisation class, because in my creative work, a lot of times it, I'll mix the two much more in a, uh, in a choreography. So I won't do that as much kind of separate them. Like, now you're making choices and now you're doing set material.
3: I could just add one thing. We were having a conversation on Friday about how, you know, all the technique classes that we take with, you know, guest teachers from Europe all have a huge um, component of improvisation and that seems like the way that most new dance is being taught. But I don't think that's reflected in our training institutions. And in some ways I find that valid. I mean, there are principles you need to learn and maybe those are easier to learn with set material. But it is a huge thing that's asked of you as an interpreter and I think that we should be addressing it um, both in people who are going to graduate and become choreographers and in people who are going to be interpreters because it's going to be a big part of what you do in a day
2: yeah. and
3: uh, it's a super important skill to address and there's so many ways of going at it and uh, I think it should be a part of your warm-up. And I I find it really useful teaching to get people out of their heads and more aware of how they're making choices. And uh, it's just really rich and it's fun. (laughs) And so I think it's like a good thing to incorporate in a technique class. And I I wish in teaching at more established institutions that we could have more freedom to do that because I think it would prepare students more for the professional world. Do
1: you ever feel that there's a risk, though, that bad habits will come back? In a more powerful way improv?
3: But I think part of teaching improv is not letting people just go into experiential stuff. I think yeah. it's it's making you aware of how you, yeah, becoming aware of your habits and learning how to break those habits and learning how to use your perception. And like there's so many, I think improv, is it sounds very open, but it actually can almost be more... Um, how could I say that, like enca like, like yeah, like there's like you know real principles at work it's not just free for all
2: there's this classic thing of the more freedom you have, the more responsibility you have at the same time, mm-hmm. and I think improv can work like that too, and actually this this has kind of come up before in class where um a student might feel that they're improvising, but the exercise is is very specific about the principles that I'm asking and they might not be doing that and then they'll say well I just feel like I'm improvising and so how do you then focus the mind away from this creative kind of um, space that whatever improvising means to them and their their self-expression and and get it back to just yes you're making choices within this with within these possibilities and you have to Mm. practice this principle so is that really improvising Um, I don't know. I think that these terms don't really serve us well, because I think uh, when you're improvising, you can be so completely set in what you're doing and know exactly what you're doing. And then sometimes when you're doing um, set choreography, it can vary incredibly from time to Mm -hmm. time um, and from dancer to dancer. So what I'm interested in is always kind of like having both go on, having... A conscious you know what you're doing um, and a kind of pragmatic approach to what you're doing and then also this stimulating the imagination through images or um, through different kinds of directions that might free up the body to this feeling to, to have this feeling of being liberated whether it's set or not
0: mm. we've come the long way around to, to that question of what is the pure expression
2: oh <laughs> Well, I've heard often that it is you know and this might be a reason why a dancer might want to improvise cuz there's this idea that if you're improvising you're freer and you're more expressing your inner whatever. <laughs> and um whereas if you're doing set movement it's confining you and you don't you're not expressing yourself. And it's it's psychological too, right? Because one thing that I've found very fascinating is that in creative processes I have several times been in situations where one dancer will think they're improvising even though we've kind of set it through all of this there, there's a really like set pathway in terms of their imagination and how that relates to their body and what they do in space next and they're performing next to another dancer who's just tell me what to do where do I, what do I do with my elbow what do I do with my foot you know and they look the same but the way that you the way that I have directed and worked with that person to get them to a feeling where they can be generous and comfortable, they believe they're improvising. Mm-hmm. And the other person to feel more comfortable believes that it's taken all the pressure off because they don't have to improvise. They just have <laughs> to think about putting this there and that there. So it changes from person to person and it's it's kind of fluid these things.
3: Do you have a response to that, Erin? What is pure expression? <laughs> that also I think would be quite subjective Um, my own feeling about that I'd say more as a performer is that it feels like when you're really connected to your own internal dialogue but you're also really aware of what's going on around you be it the other people be it the audience be it the music be it the lighting to me that feels like the best of both worlds and maybe that's pure expression so you're reacting to what's happening in the moment both internally and externally and for me that's my practice like that's what I'm working towards and have yet to achieve but like creating like a thread so that i have like something feeding me internally physically and also i don't know imaginatively but also not just going off in a zone and how can i relate that to my environment how can i take what's happening around me yeah it just seems like that's what is really cool about contemporary dance you know as a practice it's like we live in this world where people are really often quite cut off from their own bodies and cut off from each other and and here we are trying to do this thing where we make ourselves aware of what's going on around us and we develop ways of communicating that through nonverbal, I don't know technologies and and I and I think that that's Something useful, because sometimes you know you dedicate your life to dance, you're like, What am I doing I'm off in a studio in a corner with some weird people, and who else cares about this but i'm like, I look at the culture in general, and I think uh, no, this is something that's missing from our mass culture and and this is something that what we do i don't know it's definitely not only dance that that brings that, but I think it's it's something that dance has to offer people, and it's something I see when I teach like more like contribute. I see such a change in people from the beginning of a of a class to the end, you know, like they're just more open. Their eyes are working, they're breathing, they're talking to each other more, and I, their bodies seem more open as well. So You're happy. Yeah, happy. Chemicals <laughs>
0: are running through your brain.
2: <laughs> While you were talking, I was just thinking ab- about um, being connected to your body and listening to your body and the idea of um, getting away from the idea of the dance being an expression of you and your expression and being having more of a humble approach to it where you are serving your body that has much more information in it than you could than you might in your head yes. and to cultivate this feeling as a performer that you're serving your body or you're serving the piece or you're serving something bigger than yourself um, than yourself than your your ego than your identity I think that is where we get into what I could call a pure expression where it goes beyond this concern with where it's coming from and it's more in service of and uh, as a performer when I've felt that, that's been the most fulfilling experiences.
1: That makes me wonder in your role as a choreographer how do you bring, if you ever do, bring a blend of improvised moments and more set choreographed moments in in a In the creation of a piece?
3: Well, as a dancer, I've been in a variety of of, um, contexts where that's like where you have almost total freedom or where you're like set down to the microsecond. And um, I think I have a preference. Like if I'm dancing or performing someone else's work, I like there to be a measure of freedom because it like makes me less afraid of failing. Makes me feel like I can really bring something to the table and I can be in the moment and I'm not just reproducing something. Um, it makes me feel like it's alive. And as a choreographer, I hope to give that to other people. So, like, I think what George is talking about with dancers, you know, some, it's just you have to gauge the personalities of the people that you're working with. And some people really want to have that measure of freedom and some people that scares them. So, it's creating. I'm I'm, I'm almost going to repeat what he's saying. Like, it's creating a scenario where you have enough that you've offered of your ideas and your inspiration to create a voyage for something, for someone. But you are leaving the space for them to inhabit it fully, you know, you're not like directing them so much that they feel paralyzed you know, and, and and you can see sometimes that happens in a process too, like the choreographer is so attached to leaving their imprint on a dancer that they completely cut off the person's confidence and then that way they don't get what they want from the person because yeah. they've kind of like constricted them so much that they just are afraid, and so I think it's getting out of that state of fear and and giving people enough of a language and hopefully you you like your dancers to begin with. You've chosen them for a reason because yeah. you like their qualities <laughs> and we I mean, just like them as people. But like, I think you have to, we were talking about collaborators before we were recording and I think it's so important to like what your collaborators do before you even it's like a part of yeah. the choreographic process because if you like what you do then you're going to like their choices and then you're going to have less to criticize too. So.
2: Well there's the classic scenario in the studio where it's like oh just be yourself <laughs> and then you yourself, and they say, "Oh, uh, was <laughs> that who you were? Could you actually be more like the person standing next to you?" Because I like the way they did it, you know. <laughs> Ouch! <laughs> All the time, yeah. yeah. Oh, it's definitely not easy to be a dancer, but or a choreographer. Um,
3: or a choreographer that's a dancer in someone else's work. <laughs> you. You're like, I want to save this for my own work. <laughs>
2: well, that, as a dancer in other people's work. I more and more vastly prefer to have everything set and because I feel the pressure of um, the responsibility of freedom, quote unquote, and also the issues that come up with if you're creating something and you're improvising in someone's work and, you know, within the same day you're going from one rehearsal to the other and you might even, there's this crossover starts to happen naturally and unless you can unless you're in a situation with a choreographer where you can they can really help you frame the improvisation that you're doing and guide you and direct you so that it's it's it is still very different than what you would do on your own unless you're with someone like that it can be you know a difficult place to be in because you want to be generous as a dancer and at the same time you have to kind of be responsible to well, I'm not going to just do my my piece in when they when it's improv time, even though my body might just want that to happen now. Yeah. So you have to kind of negotiate all of that and still be in a generous way contributing to the the piece as a dancer. So I love it if it's just all set.
3: I think I have <laughs> <laughs> one last thing to just add to your question is that how do you how do you create improv as a choreographer? I think one thing that I started doing was And I don't always do it, but leading my dancers through the way I teach improv. Because there's so many ways. Like, it's like, what are the parameters here? You know, what are you asking for? And I think by you get them in the zone that you're interested in exploring. And then from there you know, you have a language that you've helped create together, then from there you can create. But I think if you're just going to walk into a studio and someone asks you to improvise without having kind of laid the foundation, that's where I think it becomes very blurry what someone's asking you to do. And as a choreographer, I don't think it's just a matter of creating um, movement. It's really, you know, directing people and Mm -hmm. making all sorts of choices that come together to create a piece. So I think for a long time, I thought it was just about making movement. And then like over time, you're like, Oh, no, that is so not enough. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Another thing can happen in a creative process, sometimes, um, as a dancer that I've experienced that can be incredibly frustrating and difficult, um, is the there's the kind of assumption or the there's the attitude that the that all the material is set, but it's not. But there's this kind of attitude that Oh, and then you just do that phrase, but there was the time wasn't taken to really finish that phrase. It's a living thing that's still in process. It's sort of, there's just kind of like fast forward to like, "We're just going to act like it's all set and finished, and then the dancers will just kind of make all these choices and negotiate amongst themselves, mm-hmm. which yeah. which can be a very difficult, interpersonal kind of negotiation if for if a group of dancers to have to just quickly kind of like make all these choices. <laughs> and and often these are kind of processes where the choreographer might say that it's not collaborative for example the dancers are just doing the set movement meanwhile kind of on the side and uh, like spontaneously there's all of this quick decision making that has to happen
3: yeah Especially if people, the choreographers, have lost touch of what it is to be physical, right? Then, then they forget all the choices that have to be made in order to just make things happen. So even that could just happen with spacing and stuff. It's like
2: with spacing, with shifts of weight, with focus, with all these all these little details that really make the dance.
0: Um, I did want to hear you guys talk about how should a dancer choose its training afterwards or after obviously a dense program. Very tough transition. What are your thoughts on that?
3: Well, I, I definitely think it's a big responsibility and uh, I think that's also when your body becomes your real instrument because I see sometimes now that I am teaching in, in schools how there are some people that really take it upon themselves to train outside of class, but there's people who rely on class to to give them all of their, their dance training, and it's just not enough. Like, it just really, class is there to, to teach you things, but it's not, it's not going to, like, train your muscles equally in a balanced way. It's not going to stretch you properly. Like, I think, and I personally i was like terrible as a dancer i never properly trained myself for quite a few years and then i got really injured and then like that'll teach you you know once you once you deal with a few good injuries then you develop a regimen so mm. i mean if people can do that ahead of time and be smart and do some kind of smart cross training and get their cardio in and stretch themselves and i think one of the best things people could do is develop a meditation practice too i, I think that helps your concentration your memory your awareness But it's only over time that I've realized that. So, yeah, I think yoga, Pilates, Qigong, all those things are really great things to do. And it just depends on the individual and what kind of dance they want to do.
2: Yeah, it definitely depends on what kind of dance they want to do. That's a really good point. Because I think... You know, we have to be realistic. you If you're not doing ballet every day or every week, don't go audition for La La La. <laughs> like, just don't, you know? <laughs> Unless you're doing some really virtuosic breakdancing or something, and yeah. you think they might be into that. That would be kind of badass. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I would say, in general, try and do some kind of cardio. Regularly and some kind of core strengthening exercises um regularly uh so just you've just kind of got like a basic maintenance going on but i'm um, I would be careful with gym training that's muscle that like free weight training too much um if you're not balancing that with something like yoga I'm gonna be careful about what kind of a body what kind of a you know um muscles you're developing and keep them long and I would say change your training kind of regularly do pilates for 3 months do yoga for 3 months go to the gym and do 2 hours of cardio for a week or so um go swimming go for walks kind of keep shaking it up so that you you keep practicing this ability to to adapt
3: yeah and like when you are working on a process, figure out what makes sense for that process. Like whether it's something that's like you're throwing yourself on the ground, you need to do like restorative yoga to make your joints yeah. feel better, or do you need to get lots of massages, or yeah, you massage, know, do you need massage, to swim? Massage. Like just like <laughs> figure out like what's going to be the almost like antidote for the work that you're doing, as well as the thing that's going to train you for it.
2: Yeah, that's a good point, and the meditation too, and the massage, and things that calm your mind, because often we can a lot of injuries i've seen happen because there's an injury but then there's also a sort of psychological nervous system connection of worrying about the the injury that creates other injuries Mm -hmm. and then there's this kind of weird cycle that starts to take in where it becomes really important that to kind of like be able to calm down and just be like okay don't freak out i just have to be careful with this move yeah and this move
3: And it seems to me that it's shifting. Like, I I look at the younger generations now, and I feel feel older. And when I was coming up, it was like dance was this really badass thing to do. And and the older dancers just smoked like crazy (laughs) and treated themselves horribly and, like, just asked their bodies to do insane things, you know. Like, there was this real, like
2: and got hip replacement. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like,
3: <laughs> and so we didn't think of our, like, maintaining and feeding and taking care of the body. And I think, like, now I see people, it seems like everyone's going to yoga, everyone's, you know, eating well. And I, I think that's great. Like, I didn't do that, but uh,
0: I think it's a good idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and osteos and physiotherapists yeah. in them. Were yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I
2: think one of the best things I've done in my training was to get regular massages. Yeah, like deep tissue massage.
0: Rolfing,
3: save me. <laughs>
2: what did? Rolfing. Um,
3: Rolfing, it's like myofascial massage. And I think lots of times as a dancer, you know, you might get yourself fixed, but your your patterns and your muscles are still, and your fascia are pulling you out of place. So it's something that replaces your fascia and helps to repattern. But I think things like uh, Feldenkrais and Alexander technique are, are really great things, too, yes. because they're not exhausting, yeah. but they're like soft kind of intelligent ways that you can keep training your body without adding more fatigue. Cause let's face it, like you don't have, you only have so much energy in a day. I think it would be great too, if the dance world could stop being so type A and, and be more respectful of just our need to repair our bodies. You know, like if you look at even like athletes training for the Olympics, like they don't go crazy right before a competition, you know, like there's this point where you pull back. Whereas in dance, We exhaust ourselves, like, leading up to a performance and then expect ourselves to perform at our highest level. And it's crazy. Like, it's just, like, no wonder everyone's injured after shows, you know. And I I think that we could rehearse in different ways. You know, you rehearse hard three days a week, and two days a week you talk about the work, or you, you know, do something else, you address the uh, dramatic aspects. So I think there's, like, we could be less hardcore and go further, too.
2: I had just one thing to add about the training Um, to think about the difference between training fundamental principles or training in an an aesthetic so that you're practicing something that is malleable that you can apply to different aesthetics as opposed to wherever you go whatever audition you go you're going to do this certain kind of aesthetic i think that's kind of a, a good thing to bear in mind
1: we're going to have okay. to ask you come back later. <laughs> Sounds like that. <laughs>
2: Part two. <With>
0: pleasure. <laughs> thank you so much for yeah, coming thank in you. today. you for asking. You're welcome. <laughs> We've been speaking with Aaron Flynn and George Stamos, and uh, we were Dirty Feet podcast on the No More Radio. I'm Austin Burns.
1: I'm J.D. Papillon.
0: And I'm Joannie Farrand. And thanks for listening. Dirty Feet is recorded every week at the Montreal Improv Theatre. Check them out at montrealimprov.com
1: Dirty Feet is produced and hosted by
0: Allison Burns
1: J.D. Papillon
0: Jen Dome Joannie Farrand
1: and distributed by No More Radio.
0: You can find more about our show at Nomoradio.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Dirty Dirty Feet and you can find us on Facebook at Dirty Feet Podcast. Tune in next week for a whole new show.